1: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
0: Good morning. So my question for you is, this morning is, where is technology taking your business? So, you know, a sizable amount of a private investigator's work is documentation. It's really tedious. It's very time-consuming. We have all kinds of kicky electronic toys, but have they really made a difference? And how efficient are you? And, and how do you present your materials and your package and your, your reports to your clients? This often means the difference between getting further business from that client getting that client to refer you to other clients, potential clients, or sitting in your office waiting for the phone to ring. So I have with me, delighted to have private investigator Phil Becknell. Hi, Phil. Hi, how are you? Very good. Phil is a private investigator at least in uh, West Virginia or West Virginia. Which one is Uh, it or both?
2: Well, I'm actually, I live in D.C., um, but yeah. I have, we have licenses in Virginia and actually West Virginia, too, and Maryland and California, but we're basically, a, we're a D.C.-based uh, private You're just it.
0: all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> <I've been with. laughs> well, I know you've closely examined these fund- fundamentals of documentation, and you have some recommendations, but before we get into that, you know, I'm, people always like to hear somebody's background, so I know you're a licensed private investigator, you're a managing partner, correct, in the name of your company?
2: Yeah, um, I'm the managing partner of Denalt, Ducknell & Wells Investigative Group. Uh, so we're a small uh, investigator firm, like I said, based in D.C.
0: Yeah, and I, I know you've written a couple of books. One on this topic, The Principles Invest Gave Documentation, and then you've written another book.
2: Yeah, so I've written... Um, I've written another book, which is called uh, "Introduction to Conducting Private Investigations," and and that book was originally published as mm-hmm. under a different title, uh, "Private Investigator: Private Investigator Entry Level O2E." And um, that book is the the textbook for the private investigator course, which is required for uh, PIs to get licensed in Virginia. Um, but then that's, with,
0: yeah, that's great. Yeah. Under what? I'm sorry. I was going to say, under the second
2: edition, it uh, changed the title and and made it a a more national focus. So it's not just uh, Virginia-based, but but, uh, talks about investigations everywhere.
0: Yeah, and you were uh, actually you were a guest on the show a few months ago, and I know that you're currently working on a book. And how's that coming? It's going well. Um, It's hard,
2: you know, to to find time to write. I, I I take the time that I can, and I'm I'm anticipating being done by the end of this year. Uh, so it's it's coming along. It's it's hard to, it's hard though when you have a date.
0: It is hard. And and uh, have you got a, a working title or have you settled on a uh, exact title yet? <laughs> uh,
2: I, I, have a, uh, I have a I have a, a planned title, um, I have a plan title, but I'm not sure I'm not sure if that'll change or not. And yeah. the title um, that I'm planning on using is called is is price, the Price of Privacy.
0: Oh, good. That's a kicky title. That's good. Yeah. I so, hope um,
2: no one will steal it from you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. So um, I know you've, you've written a lot of articles in all kinds of publications, and you're uh, past president of the Private Investigators Association of Virginia?
2: Right. I was uh, the president of uh, PIAVA, the Private Investigators Association of Virginia, for a couple of years. I stepped down from that last year. And uh, yeah, I, I write a lot of articles. My latest thing has been Law. dot com. I'm a contributor there, and I write about all kinds of stuff that relates to private investigators and in our work.
0: That's great. And you've also uh, been interviewed frequently, I know, by various places as an investigative expert, like the Washington Post and U.S. News and World Report and those kind of publications. Yeah. And and you also have. Uh, a BA and a master's, a master's in criminal justice, a BA in anthropology, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, so you come with high credentials, Phil, and I'm just <laughs> delighted to have you on the show. Well, thanks, I'm delighted so, to be here. So let's talk about this issue of uh, digital, our, all our digital toys and documentation and all that goes into that. Uh, I know you have uh some very strong opinions on that, how some of those things should be done and not done
2: yeah i do It's a lofty topic um i mean it, it in my opinion uh how we document our cases is the most important uh factor in in the quality of of an investigation i mean i I feel pretty strongly that it's it's one of the most under under talked about topics that that um that relate to investigating, particularly in the private sector.
0: So when you give a presentation, Phil, how do you start with that topic?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Um, When I wrote uh, Principles of Investigative Documentation, I I coined what I call the the five principles of investigative documentation. And so that's typically how I lump it together. Um, The book doesn't start with that. It actually starts with um, some sort of misconceptions that people have about how to document investigations and sort of debunking some of those myths. but I think it's you know it's helpful to think about it just in terms of how an investigation usually progresses and the steps that you take to document it uh, during that process. And so, uh, oh. what, what I use is the five is the five uh, the five principles. Um,
0: and what are those? Uh,
2: yeah, so uh, take notes about everything you do. I mean, I, this is a boiled down condensed version of this, but right. <laughs> that's number one. Uh, document every effort to contact a witness uh, or to do surveillance, and what I call the running mm-hmm. resume. Uh, I think that that's kind of a localized term, but a running resume is in essence a uh, a diary or a journal that um, you keep concerning your investigation. It's kind of the bridge between uh, note-taking and reports. Um, mm-hmm. The third one is prepare reports. Uh, whenever there's a reasonable possibility you're going to have to testify, uh, since there's almost always a reasonable possibility that you're going to have to testify about the things you do, um, right. that generally means that you know you're preparing reports about most of the things that you do as part of the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth one is uh, take verbatim statements from hostile or unhelpful witnesses and obtain declarations from friendly witnesses. And, uh, there's reasons for that that are kind of elaborate, but you know, basically you you want to try to lock witnesses into what they say when you can uh, because
0: mm-hmm.
2: it it uh, helps later on if they try to recant. Um, and then the fifth one relates to uh, document retention uh, policies. Um, another kind of another not often enough talk, uh, talked about topic, in my view, about documentation. And it's basically just um, provide all the cases documents to the client at the conclusion of the case, um, or have a document retention policy that uh, mandates that you keep your records for a certain period of time. And I generally recommend five years uh, for that.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, um, some... Some states have laws about document, about retention, um, mm-hmm. but the main thing about retention is you have to do the same thing for every case. Right. You can't just uh, not keep them for one case and keep them for another. Just yeah. don't feel like it.
2: Right. A lot of it depends on what kind of case you do. Um, so if you're if you're doing cases involving litigation, usually the document retention policies are going to be dictated by the by the bar association for the attorney you're working for. So if you're Working a case in Virginia or Maryland, I mean the, the the duration of time that those attorneys are required to keep their cases varies somewhat. Usually between five and ten years. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, there's not a lot of laws. I, I mean, I, I'm not I don't know every you know PI law in the, in the country, but I'm not familiar with many laws that dictate specifically that private investigators are supposed to keep their records for a certain period of time. Right. Um, so usually we we go by the guidance of the lawyers that we work for. But then there are also within outside of that sort of you know, other specific types of cases like employment background checks um, mm-hmm. where the federal government mandates that you keep your records for a certain period of time, two or three years, depending on the, type of, the specific type of investigation.
0: Well, and, and lacking some kind of a rule for retention, you can always fall back on the business, whatever the business example is for your state.
2: Right. And and I mean my I when I wrote this book and when I tried to come up with a concrete policy, I mean when I I, I feel like you should err on the side of being too conservative as as opposed mm-hmm. to as opposed to risking that you might uh, destroy documents that um that you're required to keep. And so I I picked 5 years as a conservative figure that um essentially gives you gives you um you know, you're, you're you're pretty likely to be within the law if you keep your records for five years, and particularly if you offer your records to your client after that five-year period before you actually destroy them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we are, we have to say on the show, check with your own state, check with your your own rules in your own state. Um, of course. Yeah. Don't just accept what we're saying on the show here or your own country, because we do have listeners from outside the United States.
2: Sure. Certainly. Right.
0: So, uh, so this is great. Uh, let's go back um, to a couple of things. I, I know you said take verbatim notes. Are you saying to take quotes from the witness?
2: Um, well, I, I, I don't think you should necessarily take verbatim notes. Um, I mean, I think you could take verbatim notes, but I, that's not the point of it is not necessarily to, to be verbatim. I mean, the, the point of it is to take notes about the things you do, and the principle behind that is that uh, you're going to forget uh, the details of the interviews you do and the, and the investigations you do as you're as you're doing it because that's what people do uh, we forget things um and so mm-hmm. note taking
1: um,
2: just as a basic you know principle is it, it's a very good idea it's a very good sound business practice it's going to improve your documentation practices um, as as you go down the list from running resumes to reports to testifying to you know having to produce documents as part of some litigation later on, having those notes, um, buttresses your credibility. It increases the accuracy of your findings. Um, and so it's a good practice altogether. Now, uh, verbatim notes, um, you know, it, there could be some, some practical reasons why taking verbatim notes of a, of an interview, for example, might not be practical, but, but you certainly want to take notes well enough that you're, you're capturing the, the, the essence of what they're saying, the substance of it. And to the extent that there are quotes, um, in an interview that are important, you know, I think putting quotation marks around those statements in your notes, um, including those quotes in your reports is is a good general practice, too.
0: And so some people listening to this show might say, well, why aren't you just tape recording uh, what the witness is saying?
2: Yeah, right. And this comes into technology and how technology has changed investigations to some extent. Um, you, You can tape record, uh, uh interviews in in most states uh some states you can't california would be one where you couldn't at least do it surreptitiously right um and there's a few others maryland's another one so uh you know there's there's different laws about when when you can, whether it's an all party uh consent state or a one party consent state um but the other problem I think that that uh with tape with tape recorded notes is that they they tend to make us lazy when it comes to um, pr- producing our, our work product to our clients, so I think if you're if you're going to audio record uh, an interview, um, you know I think you still you still have to prepare a report about that interview that takes out important parts of that interview and gives it
0: some context. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, exactly. A lot, a so we, just, we excuse uh, me for interrupting. Uh, we right? I've just got notified we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Bill will be right back.
1: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472- 5787. 1-866-472- 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com
0: Private investigator Phil Becknell has looked at how private investigators document their cases and has some recommendations. And we were just talking about uh, tape recording interviews. So, um, And, Phil, you were just saying that there's sometimes there's reasons to tape record, reasons not to tape record. There's various laws in different states, whether you have to get the consent of the person to tape record them or if you can surreptitiously record them. Uh, There's all kinds of... of, uh, laws that go and get into place when we talk about tape recording of anything, of any conversation.
2: Right. Right. And and in certain cases, there's also a question of whether the, whether the tape recording would be, would be a discoverable document. So the other side might actually have access to that, um, because of it, because of its verbatim nature. So it's like federal criminal cases, for example, um, there's a, there's a law uh, called jinx or sometimes called reverse jinx, which requires, um, um, defense attorneys and also prosecutors that to, to, it's basically a reciprocal discovery rule. Um, mm-hmm. And so you'd you you know you, you'd have to you know, you'd arguably have to turn over those recordings in cases like that. So depending on what the law is and where you work, there, you know, there are reasons why you, you might not want to audio-record interviews.
0: Well, and, and, and as we were just talking about offline, there's a lot of superfluous information that you talk about. When you're doing an interview, there's all kinds of side tangents, you go on just discussing maybe something that's not necessarily relevant to the case, maybe related, but not relevant to the case that uh, is superfluous when it comes to uh, the tape recording, and if you're going to utilize a tape recording in a court of law, it has to be transcribed. Right. So yeah. that it adds another whole level of, of uh, tedious work.
2: Yeah, that's right. And like I said earlier, I mean, you also, you you still have to write a report about it. It doesn't really save you any time. I mean, I think the one the one, the one one instance where it is justifiable, and I think it, it does make sense, is if you have a witness who is hostile and who you know is never going to sign a statement, um, and you're afraid that that person's going to back off of whatever they say, and it's legal to do in the jurisdiction where you work, and if the attorney that you're working for agrees with this approach, I mean, I think that, that there is an argument to be made that you, know, you might want to audio-record that interview. But I think that for most witness interviews, um, usually a well-written report you know, and or a handwritten statement is usually sufficient to, to lock that person into what they're saying.
0: Yeah, you know, now, um, lots of states uh, are enacting laws that require law enforcement to uh, audio or video record all uh, witness interviews. Yeah. So somebody might say, "Well, if they're required to do it, why shouldn't private investigators that are investigating the same cases be required to do it?" So
2: yeah, that's- well, I mean, the principal difference is that the, the police officers they're talking about um, tape recording interrogations uh, where they're trying to get confessions from people, and it's it's a little bit different of a circumstance. I mean, you're you know, I. I, I think I think that in those cases, that, that's a good idea uh, because you mm-hmm. want all the superfluous information. You don't want to just have it be one person's word against another. I mean, it helps to have that context
0: there. Right.
2: Um, but so essentially
0: the bar is a little higher when it comes to police interrogations than it would be yeah. when you're working for an attorney that's defending someone.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'd say it's much higher. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, for the record, I mean, I think that that's a good, I think that that's, those are good practices as you and I, I certainly have cases where confessions have, have been thrown out and have been questionable, and, and, and certainly audio recordings and video recordings of those confessions have, have certainly, um, you know, eliminated the circumstances about, you know, how those things happened and, and, I think, provided useful information in those cases.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and essentially, when you're talking about um, preparing reports, um, with keeping in mind that it's for possible testimony, you know, that becomes a a real legal issue. And so the way you write those reports um, without opinions, just Uh the facts, as they say, just the facts, um, is very important because that report, and when I have training classes, I always say, your report may end up before the U.S. Supreme Court for some reason or another. A judge may be reading it. You know, you want to make sure you it's (laughs) grammatically and punctually correct. (laughs) Right, <laughs> and it's well written. So.
2: Yeah, that, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's an. That's a very important point. Uh, not just for testimony, but I think also the business aspect of the kind of work that we do. I think people tend to underestimate um, the importance of, of of you know minor, seemingly minor grammatical, uh, spelling issues and things like that. I mean, they can change the meaning of the report, but also it just makes you look like a buffoon. It it makes you, it hurts your credibility when the reports aren't flawless.
0: Yeah, and so when you are talking to people about the way they prepare their reports, what kind of advice are you giving them? Um,
2: I mean, I, 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 my advice is to follow a template to have a certain uh, to have a template that you use that um, is the same in all your all for all of your investigations. Um, So have a have a way that you um, the way that you prepare the reports. It's the same for in all cases. Uh, I recommend editorial review that you have somebody else at your office give the report a second read. To make sure that everything makes sense, uh, we we do this for all the reports at our firm, and um, I think more often than not, uh, you know, the, the person reviewing the report fi- finds finds minor errors in the reports that um, that could change the the meaning of the sentences that are contained there. So I think that's a you know that, I think that's evidence of why that's important uh, because somebody else looking at the report might see things that you don't, um, and and you know, and having you know, obviously uh, keeping your opinion out of it, uh, you know, avoiding hyperbolic language, uh, making sure that your reports are accurate. I think good note taking is a big part of that. Uh, writing your reports exactly. shortly after the interviews or whatever took place, uh, so that your memory's still fresh. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of recommendations I could give, but those are some of the major ones.
0: Yeah, and making making sure that you don't have emotionally charged words, like you said. Um, you know. Uh, using uh, adjectives like um, additional words like very or uh, words that make more out of the meaning of the sentence than the witness intended, yeah. perhaps?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things like that that, that could can make you, uh, that can affect, I mean, obviously, the words have meaning, they affect the, the meaning of the, of the sentences, uh, you know some some problems that I've had. You know I don't know. I, I've had sexual harassment complaints where my investigators have referred to you know women in the and the reports as gr- you know this girl said this and I'm like oh actually kind of you can't say that. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's just because that's how we talk and we think that that you know that's okay. Um, but when it's in a report and it's in a report in that context, it obviously is not appropriate. So
0: that's a, such a good point, Phil that we, our reports can't reflect writing how we talk. Right. Because it's out of, it becomes out of context. If you're talking to somebody, and you're, particularly if you're face-to-face, there's your body language, your expression, everything that goes into it, but when you're writing a report, it's just black and white.
2: Yeah, right. And, and in that example, so when I confronted the investigator about that issue and I said, well, you can't put that in a report, it's, it's sexist, and He said, "Well, but that's how the witness, who was a female, referred to the person who she was talking to. She said, "She used the word girl, so I put that in the report." And I said, "Well, mm-hmm. you know that's all well and good, but if you're going to do that and it, and it's going to be your words, then you need to put girl in quotes, <laughs> you know or right. or if it's or if it's not relevant, then just put woman <laughs> it's because that's that's the way that you should say it. I mean, it's yeah. a silly example, but it you know when, when no, I think it's a
0: great I actually think it's a great example because if if you're using a word or a phrase." That you wouldn't nec- that you would not use. Yeah. That came from the witness. You've got to put it in quotes.
2: Right. Otherwise, it's your word.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So So, no. um, let's see. You were there was something else on my mind. I lost it, but we'll come back to it. But um, so, do you have when you have this template? Is that something with your letterhead and a footer? And how? What does that look like?
2: Um, yeah. So, I mean, our template's pretty elaborate. Um, I mean, not elaborate, but it, it, it's pretty, um, you know, we're, we're very specific about how, how we do our reports. I mean, it goes down to, uh, it has a header as, um, it, you know, we're, we're very specific that the report can only have one recipient, although other people could be copied on it. The reason for that is that, you know, the, the primary recipient of the, of the, of the report is the person who's responsible for that information. So if you if you're going to send it to a bunch of people, it creates confusion about who's going to act on the information in the report. So we always only mm-hmm. have one recipient. Uh, we always make the date the data of the report, and not the data of the underlying activity, which is contained in the body of the report. I mean, the reports right. by the, there's a whole bunch of factors that um, you know, but we're we're very specific about how we do our reports. So if you look at our report, if you look at a report from us today, um, it, it's going to look substantially similar to one that was written. Five years ago, um, and you know, I, I, I think that that's a good idea because it it, it you know it, it shows that we're it shows that we're detail oriented not only in the way that we write our reports but in how we do our investigations.
0: Exactly, it shows you have standards that you follow all the time. Yeah, and I and I know what I was going to uh, mention. There's it's so easy, and I I'm at fault for this, of. Um, Using or, or typing the wrong word, the, the right word, but the wrong spelling. For instance, there and there, T H E R E, T H E I R. And that isn't going get, to get picked up on your spell check. Oh, yeah. So if you're right. having somebody else edit your report, or if at least you read it aloud to yourself, you might catch it.
2: Yeah, or go back a couple hours later sometimes. I, I, I'll sometimes see errors and things that are right. If I go back, um, if I go back later, I mean, not everybody has, the has you know, an editor, um, you know, waiting waiting in the wings to edit your reports when you want And There might be times when you need to get it out faster. Um, so, yeah, printing documents, you catch more mistakes when you print documents as opposed to when you're looking at them digitally. Um, mm-hmm. But, I you know, in our firm, we, uh, we you know, generally I or, or the case manager reviews the reports for our investigators, and it just doesn't matter. It's, it's kind of a religious thing that we do. Our reports don't go out unless we... Um, unless we have that review.
0: Uh, Have you ever used a product called Grammarly?
2: Grammarly? No, I've never heard of that.
0: Grammarly uh, is online. You can subscribe to it. It's very low cost. If you're a student at a university, um, you get it for free. The university provides it. But it's great because it goes through um, it goes through spelling, um, phraseology. Uh, there's all kinds of points that it covers, including plagiarism. By the way, in case you are writing <laughs> a paper that that uh, you could unintentionally plagiarize somebody else. Um, but it it has all kinds of components. It's really good. Yeah, and it I think. it gives you a score and it and it highlights each one and shows you how to correct it. Yeah, I, th- I
2: think something like that would be a really good idea. Um, it, but it,
0: it's also not fail-safe. I mean, you you, you can you still have to do the, what you're talking about. But it does uh, what I what I like about it is it uh, sometimes when I phrase something, it might not be exactly correct, even though it looks correct to me, mm-hmm. and it it will pick that up.
2: Yeah, there. I mean, I, there's there's still a the substance of the report that's, I guess, an issue. One of the major, like, so a sentence can be grammatically correct, um, but your pronoun usage in the sentence can can imply that you're referring to a, a person who's different mm. than you're actually referring to, and it can make the sentence very confusing. And it might be completely correct, but it just might have a meaning that that's not what you intend.
0: Right. That's a really good point. We need to take another break, Phil. Don't go away, Phil, and I will be discussing more about where technology is taking your business. We'll be right back.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at one 472 5788 That's one 472 5788 You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Bill,
0: you found that... Um when, when talking to investigators, that many investigators, since we have so many high-tech tools, we have digital recordings, we have digital cameras, we have our iPhones, we have all of these things, that they are turning over the digital media instead of reports. And why don't you address that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there is a tendency because to do that. And, and I think that that's, that's because our, our society has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. uh, Digital media has become much cheaper uh, than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, There's, you know, it's easier to record interviews on your iPhone or whatever. Um, And I think that, uh, I think that for investigators who are are newer and who, uh, you know, weren't doing this 20 years ago when we were carrying big accordion files around (laughs) with metal (laughs) file cabinets and if you recorded it, was on a micro cassette recorder um so you know we still have file cabinets and we still have uh, we still have paper files um but uh but we also have all this digital media and i think that there is a temptation uh for a lot of folks to to just turn that over to attorneys and say well that you know that is my work product um and there are some good reasons why that's a bad idea in my view
0: okay and what are those reasons
2: well, uh, so you, if you take a, you know, I guess like I said before, if you're if you're audio recording an interview, um, if you're taking photographs of a crime scene or doing surveillance, uh, the context of that of that of that task is lost uh, in, in the digital recording. There are issues with uh, the whether the you know whether the recording would be discoverable. Uh, there, are, uh, there are reasons that you might not be able to surreptitiously record the interview. I think the context, though, is really the biggest part of it. And just to give you an example, so uh, I did, you know, I had to go out and, and take photographs and examine a crime scene you know, on an evening uh, last week. And while I could take photographs of the crime scene, I could turn those photographs over to the client. What's missing in in that in that is. Um, the circumstances, the lighting conditions that make that made that night and the time that I took those photographs similar to when the alleged crime happened uh, Mm -hmm. over a year ago. And so in this case, you know, I had to do research to to show that, that the moon was in a waning gibbous phase at 70% full and that the cloud conditions were similar uh, and that, and that sunset was at a certain time on this in the state when this, when this uh, event happened uh, Mm -hmm. at that, you know, so there's all this there's all this information that doesn't get conveyed, uh, or you might convey verbally if you hand over a, a DVD to a client, but that verbal information quickly gets lost. Right. Or and so uh, you have to prepare a report as well to show, you know, this is this is how I did it, and this is why I did it, to show your reasoning behind the the digital media that you're turning over.
0: Well, and we all know that when somebody's showing us photographs, they mean absolutely nothing unless they're explained. Right. And without, without that context, you really wouldn't know, know what you're looking for or looking at. And, and, I, and I was just saying while we were off, uh, offline there that it's in my experience, at least in California, I don't know whether this is true across the country, but uh, when we submit photographs on a... Um, a criminal case, for example, and I'm sure it's true on a civil case as well, it can't have uh, a description on the photograph, right? Whether it's, okay. it's a, whether it's the photograph itself or whether it's a, a copy that's inserted into a report. We can't, we can't explain that because that may be turned over and used as evidence in the case, and you don't want to give a jury any preconceived ideas. They need to look at the, the pure document.
2: Right, you're altering it by 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 virtue of uh, writing on the on the picture, or you know, exactly altering it anyway. Yeah, uh, that's a good point too. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I guess the 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 thing is that that the information that you might convey verbally or in an email, uh, it, it might be easier to do it like that. Um, but but the things that we investigate um, sometimes don't come to court for for many months or even many years after.
0: Sometimes years, yes.
2: Yeah, and sometimes even after they're, they go to trial court, they're appealed, uh, and, it, and it might be several years before that issue is, re- is revisited. Um, and the only thing that's that, that um, that's really sufficient to, to, to hold that information in, in, in an immutable form that uh, is going to stand the test of time is really a report, something formal, a uh, document that outlines all the details of the things that you did.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Phil, let me let me ask you this: If you were, um, say, I'm a brand new investigator and you're going to tell me exactly what to do about how to set up reporting to my clients, what things would you tell me?
2: Um, well, I, I I probably would tell them first to get my book, but
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but but besides that, that's a great answer. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I you don't have to buy my book, but I I, I do think that, you know, really recognizing what the importance of documentation is is, is a is a pretty important step um
0: mm-hmm. in
2: being successful with a private investigator. I mean, you, the reports that you prepare are the primary tangible work product that you're going to give your clients. And if if you take that lightly, um you're not you're not going to have clients for very long. Um so that's I mean, I think that that, that recognition is 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 important for success in our business, and then I think beyond that, um, you just have to ask, you know, yourself if you want to figure it out on your own. What, what's the best way to get to reports that are that are flawless and and are going to meet the expectations of your clients? And I think that that's more than just being a good writer, or or more than just having a, a certain template that you use for your for your reports, which you could you know, mm-hmm. borrow from another investigator or get from a book or wherever. But i think it's it 's having a foundation of sound business practices that lead up to your reports that um, that, that help you get there and and, and that foundation is good note taking it 's keeping a running resume it 's uh, you know editorial review of your reports it 's knowing when to take statements when not to take statements and it 's knowing how long you have to keep your documents afterward
0: mm-hmm. uh, that's the you know and i and I think that um, we haven 't talked about this, but I think that that branding is really important, and it's something that often, um, when a private investigator starts out, opens their business, they don't think about that their um, their business cards, their letterhead, and every document they submit to a client um, carries a message. And from the the name you give your business to the way your business cards are are. Uh, designed to the way your letterhead and this template, your, your template, your report template you're talking about, all of that should be very consistent as yeah, your brand. I, yeah, I agree, and, and with, the, with
2: the, a lot of attention to detail. I, I recall once many years ago, somebody giving me a, a card, you know, like a pre-printed or one of these printed business cards, where a private investigator was spelled wrong. And I,
0: thought, <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> that's not a good sign. <laughs> good, good luck, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good sign. No. Well, We should probably, since you mentioned the book, we should probably take an opportunity to mention the title of the book again, because I think that um, people listening may be very interested in reading this book, um, Bill, The Principles of Investigative Documentation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the subcaption is, Creating a Uniform Style for Gathering uh, Reports and Packaging Information. And I I think there's some really good tips in it. And I know you can get it on PI Store. I should mention our sponsor here. PI Magazine also has a company called PI Store. P I S T O R E One word. dot com. Um, And where else can you get it on Amazon?
2: Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's put out by Charles uh, C. Thomas uh, publisher, Publisher. Um, so you can get it on their website, too. Uh, honestly, I'm not sure what their website is, but Amazon's probably the easiest way or the PI store.
0: Okay. All right. Okay, so um, so you've got the template, and what kinds of things are... When you're designing your template, what kinds of things go into that? What does it look like? Can you describe it to us?
2: <laughs> sure. So, um, I mean, our template has it at the front. At the, at the top of it, it should have... Um, I mean, you have to also consider privilege. So, you, in order to in order to to be uh, included under the umbrella of legal privilege for the attorneys that you work for, you need to you need to um, make that explicit. So, you you typically want to put at the top of the report in the header uh, something like attorney work product or uh, attorney client uh, privileged information or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like we usually use attorney work product. This is what we have at the top of our reports. Uh, you okay. want to have the date of the report. You want to have the the primary recipient of the report. Uh, you want to have the other people who were copied on the report. Uh, the case name, and then um, under that we is where the substance of the report starts. Uh, and it, it it typically includes uh, w- when the interview took place, uh, the date that the interview took place. Sometimes we also include a physical description of the person who we interviewed. If it was an interview report, we also uh, we also include the date of birth of that person and their social security number, if we know it, uh, so that we can find them later. Uh, that's obviously optional. Uh, and then we we have what's called we call it a disclaimer uh, paragraph that um, indicates that we we told the witness who we are, were which party we're working for, uh, and and essentially you know who we who we are and what our relation is to the investigation, and that they agreed to speak to us. And then uh, from there, we, uh, we write our reports in a, in, a, in a very detailed sort of question and answer uh, narrative. So we, 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 we talk uh, not only, you know, what the witness said, but we also uh, write down uh, the questions that we asked as well so that the, there's a context for their responses. Uh, and then at the end of the report, we usually put a footer line and we indicate who reviewed the report um, and with a link to our website so that people know what the company was who prepared the report. And that's how we do it. And that's, I don't know that that's necessarily the way everyone should do it, but, but that's the way that we found it works best for us.
0: Okay. Now, have you ever run into issues with providing a description of the individual in, in the report?
2: Um, we, we, only, we don't do that in every case. Um, we, we typically, I mean, the concern for us, in that first paragraph and why we why we include this the social and the date of birth that we have it is if it's a criminal case or, or some other case where we're concerned that we're not going to be able to find that witness later like if there's a high chance that they're going to be subpoenaed later and so we just want to have some place where we have a description for them of them that um that generally tells them what what we look like and what they look like and we're, we're pretty general about it just not like um you know it's not a it's not a very detailed description but it is a general description if there's going to be a question of did we interview the right person or do we need to find that person later
0: right okay okay we need to come right back or to come with phil decknell private investigator stay tuned
1: on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: Yeah, we're, uh, we're back with Phil Becknell. Um, we were talking about um, how the report template is looks like, how it's designed, and and I. I and we we're—I was just asking Phil why we we're on the break about including the description of the individual because I was a little surprised at that. And I think Phil, you wanted to make a clarification.
2: Yeah, so we don't do that in all our reports, um, and, and what that's typically called is biographical information. So you just put some some information concerning what the person looked like and what what the what the uh, surroundings uh, looked like. Like if you worked if you interviewed them in their living room, for example, you might put a description of their living room, and the idea is that is it. If they later claim that they didn't talk to you, um, you have that description of them and and of the of the surroundings uh, Now we don't do that in all of our reports. I should clarify so uh and, and in fact i would I would say that we do that we don't do that in most of our reports. Most of that information would only be included in the cases running resume, not on the report itself.
0: yeah, the running resume where you just you kept the diary of what you were doing, and that makes sense because you may have to go back uh years later and and find this individual um it was just my reaction was that this was an opinion and if it was going into an official report that was going to a client, that that could be problematic. So I just wanted to make sure we kind of cleared that up. Yeah. Um, so um, going back to the diary, when you're talking about um, preparing notes, you're, you're actually doing as you go, every, every time you make a contact with anybody, you have notes about that contact, where it's where it took place, what the person looked like you should talk to, and any other relevant data as part of that running resume.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that information sometimes goes into the notes as well um, because you're taking notes, you're out in the field. Um, In the last few years, we've we've started giving our investigators iPads so that they can access their running resume out in the field, and we've found that that works um, sometimes. Uh, you, you know, after, you, after you end inter- an interaction, sometimes rather than taking notes, you could just put the information directly into the running resume. Um, and and are, you,
0: are, you, are you using the notes portion of the iPad or using something else?
2: Uh, no, actually we're using the browser for the, for the iPad to log into the Internet into our, into our online case management system, which oh. is where our running resumes get. So okay. that's pretty slick, and, okay. then, and then the client gets that update instantly. So as soon as we talk to somebody, they know exactly. I mean, we the sent them a notice of it, but th- if they wanted to log in right after that, um, right after that interaction, they could see that we talked to somebody, what the description was, and what happened. And and, and, the, oops, go
0: and that case management program is that something you guys designed for your office, or did you get it someplace else?
2: No, um, there's different. There's different case management programs. Um, oh. We use we use one called TrackOps. Um, that we've been using for a long time, a number of years. Uh, I don't know that it's the best program. Uh, it works okay for us. Mm-hmm. But but there are other ones, too, that have um, something that would be usable with a running resume application.
0: A lot of those programs are, are fairly expensive for a sole proprietor investigative agency.
2: Yeah, that's true. But actually, TrackOps is a pretty is pretty affordable and what we actually do, so it's, they charge you per case that you set up and we have, of course, hundreds and hundreds of cases over the years and what we do is we just, we just pass that charge through to our clients and it's only like nine ninety nine a case so we, TrackOps hasn't cost us anything.
0: Interesting. And so is that a uh, subscriber-based program online?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a web-based program. Um, it's password protected uh, and you you know, you, you essentially uh, set up cases and, and put the information in there, and it's it's available. You can control access to who you want to have. You know, you can have clients uh, at different law firms, and maybe the law clerks or the associates at different cases. Those firms only are on certain cases. You can just give them access to the cases you want to give them access to and not the other cases, and you control access to your firm and your staff, and it's, I mean, and it works you... pretty well for us.
0: Uh, okay. And, it, and
2: it, and in, in, of those cases, is a running resume that basically details everything that we've done in that case going back to the beginning.
0: And do you, so do you have a way to print out what you've inputted so you have uh, a record in your office in case something happens to track ops?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, it's backed up, uh, so we don't generally print it, um, but... We don't keep our reports i mean that's not where all of our that's not where all of our documents are kept. We have a server where that's everything is kept completely separate so except for the running resume itself, which does contain reports um, those reports are actually duplicates of reports that are already kept in our on our server okay. and also okay. put it out of our file so there's like triple you know basically they're basically in three places
0: so you they're haven't also, gone the route of the paperless office yet
2: yeah. <laughs> Not completely. We still have we still have a lot of file cabinets. Um, I mean, the the thing the problem with paperless is notes. Um, so I don't see how you get I don't see how you get around not taking some notes. I mean, we 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 do have iPads, and sometimes that saves us the trouble of doing notes if we're going to just add stuff directly to the running resume. But in a lot of cases, um, that doesn't work. So you still have to take notes. You still have court documents that you you know have to make pr- print you know. Uh, copies of it at courthouses, and there's still records you subpoena. Um, so you're still going to have a lot of paper records. Um, I, I still religiously carry a paper file for every case that I work at. Yeah. And my, but my, you my,
0: could always, when the case is over, you could always scan them in and maintain only the digital copy and, and uh, shred the rest.
2: Yeah, you could do that. It's just, um, we have, you know, my firm is, we have a lot of cases, and I just would involve a lot of, a lot of time. Uh, we, we, we've we experimented with that. We, we, were, we were also kind of running out of room on our server, too. We've had to upgrade yeah. the server several times because of all the digital records that we have, so, which was actually what spurred us to have the document retention policy. We, we finally decided we were keeping records indefinitely, and we were just like, we can't, there's just no way to keep all right. this indefinitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I went through a similar process as well. You just uh, you end up, you're in business for, you know, 25, 30 years, and you have records from when you started. You've got to start... Um, taking some of them out of that. It's, yeah,
2: there's just no way. I mean, you can't, you can't keep everything all you know, for, for, till the end of time.
0: So, you know, Bill, we're almost at the end of our program here. What, um, if you were to summarize uh, your advice to other private investigators about um, the use of digital media, the use of electronic toys, and how you operate your, your business to be effective and efficient, what would you say? Um, technology,
2: uh, is great. Uh, technology programs like, uh, case management systems, like iPads, like iPhones, uh, like digital recorders, all those things, uh, make our jobs, uh, they enhance our investigations and they make our jobs easier, but, but they don't, they don't replace the need for fundamental documentation practices, uh, which haven't changed over time. They're the same now as they were a hundred years ago. You write reports, you take notes, you take statements and provide that information to the clients, and, and on we go.
0: And, of course, contrary to popular belief, uh, we don't get all our information through the Internet. You still have to go out and walk, walk the streets and knock on doors.
2: Yep. In fact, a lot of the best information you still get by knocking on doors and submitting FOIA requests and uh, you know, all this, looking through court, paper court records and microfiche. And, I mean, a lot of the, that information is still
0: there. It's not, not everything is online uh, for sure. Exactly. And I, you mentioned FOIA requests, F-O-I-A requests. Yeah. Um, do you do that very often? Um, yeah, we do.
2: Uh, you know, we, we're in D.C., so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the, some of the information that relates to our cases involves government agencies. And so, yeah, certainly we've, we've, we do a lot of FOIAs to the federal government. And also, um, in our criminal cases, we can you know, depending on the state, but in Virginia, for example, you could flare uh, Shots. So you know, if I'm really, looking... wow. Yeah, so if you're looking for somebody and you want to find a picture of them, you could submit a FOIA request to the police department, and you can get a copy of the photograph. I mean, that's what journalists do when they um, when you see people's pictures in in the newspaper. Uh, that's how they do it. Uh, so there's no reason why private investigators can't do it either.
0: Well, that's that's a really interesting tip. I don't know whether that can be done in California. I'm certainly going to check that out. I've never thought about it.
2: Yeah, it depends. Uh, In D.C., you can't do it. In Virginia, you can. In Maryland, you can. So it just depends on what the jurisdiction is. But I mean, typically, if you you open up a newspaper for that jurisdiction uh, where the the crime occurred and you see a photograph of a mugshot of somebody, that typically is an indication that you could probably.
0: Interesting. Well, this has been a fascinating um, tutorial. Bill, on uh, getting your cases ready for for your clients, I think it was, I think it was very helpful. I certainly learned something. I hope people listening learned as well. I hope so too. So let me just mention before we leave today, uh, our loyal sponsor, PI Magazine. www.pi all one word dot com. Um, they're very loyal sponsors, and uh, if you're interested in. Learning more about private investigators, you can subscribe to PI Magazine, and there's all kinds of articles about private investigators or the kind of work private investigators do. And if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, my wonderful producer of this show, Sondra Rogers, at sondra, S-A-N-D-R-A dot rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at com would love to talk to you. So uh, this is the end of our show. Phil, thank you so much for taking your time today. I appreciate it. And I, as I say, I learned a lot.
2: Thanks
0: for having me. Absolutely. So tune in again. And good luck on your book, by the way. We're waiting to hear about that. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIS Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler, and thanks so much for listening.
1: You've been listening to PIS Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. on P.I.'s Declassified.